And so let's turn to Genesis chapter number 50. Genesis 50. We're going to look at three principles about God's plans that are going to give us a perspective for a new year. And we're going to go to Genesis 50. Now, I know we read Genesis in our scripture reading, but other than that, I realize your Bible is not extremely used to flipping back to Genesis on a Sunday morning. But because this morning is different, um, I just thought while we had an opportunity to do a single standalone message, um, we could look into God's word for God's plan for us for a new year. And we can discover that plan from the book of Genesis. And you say, you know, if we're going to talk about God's plan for me, I'm not sure that Genesis is a place that, that leapt right into mind. And yet, this morning will be an opportunity for us to remember that all of this is God's word. And all of this speaks to us from the beginning to the end. And all of it is relevant to our lives. And all of it has something to teach us about our God, including Genesis 50. And there are certainly some challenges in going to the Old Testament, right? It's a culture we, we don't necessarily really understand. Um, it's even a way of communicating that we're not used to when it comes to the New Testament. We like the New Testament going to places where it just tells us straight out what it wants us to know. We've been studying James in Sunday school, and James is even more brutal that way, right? He just comes out and says, you know, I, I want you to have joy in your suffering. I want you to pray and pray a certain way. He just gives us straight out commands. I want you to control your tongue. And we don't get that when we go to an Old Testament story. What we get is just a story about somebody, something that happened a long, long time ago, and it doesn't end with a little, and the moral of the story is, or anything like that. We have to be able to discover that for ourselves. And yet we're going to discover, as we look at Genesis 50, and consider the life of Joseph, that we can see the character of God on display, and we can see that God works out his plans. He always works out his plans. And the story of Joseph is perhaps the greatest illustration of the greatest story that we can point to and say God works everything out according to his plan. So let's read Genesis 50. We're going to start in verse number 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a messenger to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And so we read the end of the story. And I don't know if you're one of those kind of people that that's how you always are with the book. Uh, you always like figuring out what the end of the story is. Uh, I'm not that way. I'm, I'm um, very picky. You've got to start at the introduction and you start at the beginning and then you read to the end and you usually do it in as quick time as possible. But this morning, for the sake of time, we have to read the end of the story because this story of Joseph, it goes over many chapters. And in fact, we're going to go over those many chapters. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And so it's good for us to have this passage in mind to, to keep the end in front of us. This is the end. Genesis 50, verse number 19. Do not fear, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so we need to go rewind and see what is Joseph talking about 
that God meant something for good. We're going to rewind to discover our first principle this morning that is going to give us a perspective about God's plan, and that is that God reveals his plans. God reveals his plans. When we rewind to understand the story of Joseph, we actually have to rewind all the way to Genesis 15. So if you would, flip back there. Genesis chapter number 15. Now, Genesis 15, if you don't understand what's happening in Genesis 15, you will never understand the story of Joseph. All right? You cannot understand the story of Joseph unless you understand what's happening in chapter 15. And if you think that's an overstatement, then I would also add that if you don't understand what's happening in Genesis 15 and in chapters 12 to 15, you're not even going to understand your Old Testament. That's how crucial your understanding is of what's going on in these verses. Because it's in these verses that God has first announced his promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God made three very specific promises that are going to be worked out in Abraham's life. First of all, he promised him that he would have a seed. He would have children. promised him that he would have land. And he promised him that he would be a blessing to all the nations. All right? Those are the three crucial promises you have to keep in mind because those three crucial promises dictate the rest of the story of the Old Testament. We call this the, the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise that Abraham would have that he would have children, those children would become a mighty nation, they would have a land, and that he would be a blessing to the people. And in Genesis 15, time has gone past since that original promise, and nothing has happened. In fact, when we get to Genesis 15:1, we discover that Abraham doesn't have children, he doesn't have a land, and he hasn't been a blessing to anybody. Nothing has happened. And so, after these things, after time has gone by, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. His name is still Abram and not Abraham at this point. And so the word of the Lord comes to him. And that's an expression that um, if you're used to maybe some later books in the Old Testament, you're used to that expression a lot, right? It shows up in the prophets. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. All right, this is a prophetic saying, and it comes to Abram, comes to him in a vision. And the stress is not on something he saw, but the fact that the word of God was with him. God was going to reveal something to Abram, all right? You see, God reveals his plans. And what he's about to reveal to Abram is going to be a revelation that's going to touch Joseph's life directly. And you have to understand what it is that God's revealing. All right, he says to Abram, God says, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. He makes a personal promise. I am your shield, I'm your protector, you're going to have a great reward. And Abram immediately understands that God's talking about the promise, and Abram says, I just wish that my servant could stand in your sight and that he would be the one that would carry on my name. It was a common practice back then. If you didn't have kids, you had a really trusted servant and your name would continue through him. He'd get the inheritance. He'd get it all. It was a regular, ordinary thing. And so Abram thought, I'm old. I still don't have a kid, but God's going to keep his promise. So maybe it's going to be through my servant, Eliezer. And Abram said, reminded God, as if God needed reminded, verse 3, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. I'm, I still don't have kids, but I've got Eliezer. And God responds to him very directly. God brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. You can imagine, uh, in a day when there weren't street lights and there weren't cities everywhere to obscure your view, Abram walks out and he looks up, and he sees all the, all the stars that he can see with his, with his bare eye, and... God follows that up with, so shall your offspring be. Your children are going to be as many as that. That's God's promise to Abram. 
And Abram has a very specific response in verse 6. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This is, this is the heart of Abram's relationship with his God, and that is taking him at his word. God said it, and Abram said, I believe it. And, and God credited it to him as righteousness. And, and this is a crucial fact that goes throughout the New Testament, right? James said it. Paul said it. Righteousness, how does righteousness come? comes through faith, not by merit. And Abram didn't merit God's favor. He didn't merit God's righteousness. It came through faith. He believed what God said. And so, God reveals further his plan. He said, I'm going to give you the land. Verse number 7. I'm the Lord who brought you out to give you this land to possess it. And Abram's confused. And so in verse 8, he says, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I, how, am I, how is this going to happen? And so God does something very special for Abram. God makes a covenant with Abram. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a promise to him. that this, What he had said about the land, about the children, about the blessing of all nations, he guarantees it by making this covenant with him. A covenant is really a relationship that involved obligation. And there was lots of different kind of covenants back then. Masters made covenant with their slaves that forced their slaves to do what they had promised to do that, that protected the master's interest. There are also promised covenants that, that protected the servant, that, that gave the servant certain rights. And that's the kind of covenant that God makes here with Abraham. He gives him a promised kind of covenant where Abraham is going to be the one that comes out on the blessed side of this. This isn't to protect God, it's to bless Abram. And so they go through, this, through the odd ceremony to us of, of taking animals, um, including birds, and he brings them out, and except for the birds, he cuts them all in half kind of a, of a bizarre thing, but the word covenant actually means cut. The original word actually has the idea of cut. And so what he would do is he'd cut the animals and he'd lay half here and half there, except for the birds. And normally when you cut a covenant, both of you would walk together between the birds and kind of it symbolized kind of the idea, if you break your promise, this is what's going to happen to you. All right, so it's a really solemn thing and normally both parties knew exactly what's saying. All right, this is a lot more serious than shaking hands or signing a contract. They're saying, I am bound by life and death that I'm going to keep, keep my word. And yet, with Abram and God, something very different happens in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So Abram's totally out. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. All right. Anybody want to guess where the people are going to be when they are under the domination of a foreign government for 400 years and how they're going to get there? All right, they're going to get there because of Joseph. And so in chapter 15, we have that God revealing his plan, a very corporate plan for his people. He reveals a corporate plan that he wants to bless Abram with a nation and with children and with a, be a blessing, but his plan is to send his people to... to be ruled over for 400 years, right? And that's God revealing his plan for Joseph. And Joseph isn't anywhere close to being on the scene yet. Abram doesn't even have Isaac yet, who is eventually going to have Jacob, who's eventually going to have Joseph. Before all that's happened, God has already revealed what his plan is. And there's a very specific reason for the plan. I will bring judgment, verse number 14. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. He's talking about the Exodus talking about the plagues. And this is happening years before. 
Abram, as for yourself, verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And verse 16, and they shall come back here. In other words, Abram's children, they shall come back here in the four. All right, back in business. Where were we? Oh, yes, the Israelites. Um, verse number 16, chapter uh, Genesis 15, verse 16. The Israelites are going to come back in the fourth generation, in other words, after the 400 years. And there's a reason for that, and that reason is given at the end of the verse, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that's an amazing commentary on why God does what he does. Um, because when the Israelites come back, what are they going to do to the inhabitants of the land? What are they told to do? They're told to wipe them out. They're going to exterminate them. And part of the reason for that, as horrific as that is in, in our way of thinking, that the Israelites came as a marauding army and just wiped out whole civilizations, they came as God's tool for judgment. God was judging those nations because of their sin. It wasn't just a willy-nilly, God is an angry God who wipes people out. Those people had sinned greatly against him, and so they were punished. That's what the Israelites were doing, and they had to exterminate. They were supposed to exterminate everybody in the land. And it's amazing that at this point in Abram's life, he can't have the land because the iniquity of the Amorites, the people that lived there, is not yet complete. In other words, they haven't sinned bad enough to be wiped out yet. Isn't that an amazing window into God's plans for these people? Their sin hasn't been full yet. I can't just go and wipe them out. God's not a capricious God who does violent things to people just because he feels like it. He has a plan, and his plan is, I'm going to judge these people, but they haven't sinned to the extent that I can just go and wipe them out. And so... It's going to have to be 400 years, and that's going to be fulfilled in Joseph. This touches Joseph's life directly. And so, verse 17, the sun goes down, and behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. don't know exactly what that means, but it's visible representation of God. God himself goes between these pieces. Um, you remember the fire and the cloud that accompanied the Israelites uh, on the Exodus. Same kind of thinking here, a fire pot and a torch. And it says in verse 18, on that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram. He made a promise, and that promise was for the land. That was God's corporate promise that I'm going to make you a nation. This land is going to be yours. And that promise is going to touch Joseph's life directly. You see, God reveals his plan, and his plan was 400 years in Egypt. And I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to show my glory. I'm going to rescue you. All right. So you say, whoop dee doo um, what, what does that have to do with me? Here we go, talking Old Testament stuff, and sure enough, it happened, but, but so what? All right. The so what is that this is, this is insight into the character of God. And the character of God is that he's a God who reveals his plans for people. He's not a God who's a hermit that hides away in heaven and leaves his creation to whatever they please. He's a God who has specific plans, and he reveals those plans. And even though we certainly aren't the Israelites, we are still a people that God has made corporate promises to. All right, And you should already be thinking, New Testament, what are corporate promises that God has made to us? Well, the thing that jumped immediately to my mind was Matthew 16, 8, when Jesus himself promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, God still has a corporate plan for you, Even though you're not a Jew, God had his, his plans for the Jew, but he also included the Gentiles. And he said, I'm going to build a church. I'm going to build a group of people who love me and worship me and believe in me. We call it the assembly. And he made promises about that group. Um, he promised that Ephesians 4.13, it would be a group that would grow and grow until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a promise that has a reason, Ephesians 5.27, so that he, might, Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, God has a plan this year for us as a church. All across the world, and in our own community as well, God is saving people and bringing them together to be an assembly. And those people are going to grow and grow to be a fit body for their head, who is Jesus. 1 Peter 2 reminds us that that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, God has a corporate plan for us this year. And that plan is that we gather together as his people who have been redeemed, and we gather together in order to encourage each other, to edify each other, to evangelize the lost, and to exalt our God. That's the broadest summary of what the church is all about, to evangelize, to edify, and to exalt. And that's what God wants to happen this year in 2008. That's what he wants to happen at Grace Church. He wants edification to happen. That means life on life, people encouraging people with scripture. That means going beyond the friendly, hi, how are you, to to the deeper, how are you spiritually? How can I help you? How can I minister to you? How are you growing? How are you not growing? to the edification. It includes the evangelism. I mean, it's proclaiming the glories of the gospel to your neighbors, to your friends, to our community. That's God's plan for us as a body. It's God's plan for us as a body in 2008 to exalt him, to lift him up, to put him on a pedestal, to make it so that every time we come together to sing to him corporately, we do that with our minds engaged and our emotions active and our will saying, yes, this is true, that we worship him in our giving and we worship him in our living. That's God's plan for us corporately. And see, those are all things that God has revealed. We don't just make those up and those aren't like a master scheme to build Grace Church from a human perspective. This is God's plan that he reveals. And just like he revealed a corporate plan in the Old Testament, he's revealed a corporate plan in the New Testament. A lot of times that kind of strikes against our sense of individualism in America, right? I mean, we're used to being a people that we've pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Uh, We've grabbed the bull by the horns. Um, we've done it my way, we've done it our way, we've done it by ourselves. Um, and yet, in the Old Testament, it was never about a single person, it was about a nation. And that way of working has continued into the New Testament where it's still supposed to be about the body that gathers together. That's the way God works. And he reveals that that's the way he works in his word. And so you need to be asking yourself, all right, God has revealed his plan. I see how that works in Joseph. I see that he's revealed his plan for us. So how am I doing at understanding what his plan is and then living it out? Ask yourself, if everybody at Grace Church encouraged other people like I encouraged them, how much encouragement would be happening? If everybody in the church evangelized as much as I evangelized, how many people would be hearing the gospel? If everyone worshipped the same way I worshipped, how much would God be getting glory from us as a church? And you take the responsibility to say, this is God's plan, I want to live it out. This is what God wants for us as a corporate body. He has a corporate plan. He's a God who revealed it in the Old Testament, and he continues to be a God who reveals his plan, and it's through his word. Not only, though, did did God reveal his plan in a corporate sense, but he also revealed it in a very specific sense to Joseph, and that starts in chapter 37 of Genesis. All right, so flip over to Genesis 37, where we get our first introduction to Joseph. 
He's been preceded by a revelation of a plan for him, and then God's going to make it very specific. Um, Chapter 37, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob, and then it starts out Joseph. We're all waiting to read this big genealogy list. These are the generations, and instead it just says Joseph. And Joseph comes to the forefront, and any reader who, who is expecting something to happen says, okay, Joseph, he must be important. Something must be about to happen. And yet what we're about to read shows that from the outset, this is going to be a story about God working and not man working. Because what happens from the very beginning of our introduction with Joseph is that we find out a little bit of background, and we find out that he's dreaming dreams. And those aren't just, I had a nice dream last night. He's actually having visions from God. We start out in verse number two, and we find out that he was 17 years old. um, And he was also in responsibility over his brothers. It says he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Report has the idea of official. He, He was responsible for, it wasn't him tattling. He was actually responsible for the oversight in some way. He brought a bad report. Verse 3 tells us about a bad situation going on in the family. Israel, or Jacob, he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. There's the famous uh, Joseph's coat of many colors. It's probably long sleeve, probably long robe. Uh, It was a kingly kind of garment. It was a garment that would have set him aside for special honor. And so he gets it, even though he's not the firstborn. And his brothers, in verse 4, they saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. All right, you have all kinds of division and fighting in this family. And Joseph didn't make things any better when he started having these dreams, and he told them these dreams, and they hated him even more. Joseph had these dreams that he was um, out in the field, and he made a shock of wheat, and all of his brother's shocks of wheat started bowing down to his. All right, And it, it didn't take a rocket scientist for his brothers to figure out that Joseph was saying, you guys are all going to bow down to me. And Joseph's brothers were already ticked at him, and now they're furious. And yet this dream, a revelation from God, reminds us that this isn't going to be a story about Joseph working, working out his wiles and scheming so that he become the master leader. Um, this is going to be a story where God has revealed that this is his plan for Joseph. His plan for Joseph is that he be the leader. This is going to happen. This is God working out his plan individually for Joseph. And so it's not just for Abraham's children as a nation, but for Joseph in particular, that God has a direction for him. And it's God's direction and not man's devices that are going to work this out. And it's God's sovereign plan and not man's scheming plots they are going to make this happen, that Joseph be the one that they bow down to. In fact, he even has this other dream where um, he sees the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to him as well. Again, didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that he's talking about his parents and his brothers all bowing down. And this further infuriated them even more. You know, this was God's revelation of what was going to happen. The remarkable thing about, about all of this is that Stephen, um, the, the first martyr, recounts this whole story in Acts 7. And you know what Stephen's point is in Acts 7? His point is that the Israelites had always rejected the one that was supposed to be the leader. God always picked out a leader or a prophet or someone to be a messenger to them, and they always said, we don't want you. Get out of here. Um, And it started with Joseph. God clearly set him apart to be the one who would be the leader, and his brother said, we want nothing to do with you. Um, And that continued all the way up through our Christ, where the very Messiah came, and they said, we don't want him. That was was the way they operated, was to say, we don't want the leader that God has revealed. And so that was God's individual plan 
for Joseph that he become the leader. And he revealed that plan. You say, all right, does, is there any carryover to today? And yes, God is still a God who reveals individual plans. And you say, all right, now we're talking. Now you're going to go ahead and tell me what God wants for me in the year 2008. Go ahead and spell it out. And see, we have this desire to know what is God's will for me? What, is, what, what am I supposed to do? And we'd even prefer it to be pretty specific, right? Um, I want you to, to do this business transaction. I don't want you to do this business transaction. I do want you to move there. I don't want you to move there. And we want this, this laundry list of, of what we're supposed to do and not do when it comes to God's will. And yet, when God reveals his plan for us, he actually reveals a framework for us to live out. And there is a framework that is revealed in, in our scriptures of what God wants for you in 2008. There are plans for you, and, and the biggest, most encompassing plan for you as an individual this year is that God wants to make you more like Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 8, 28 and 29. I'm, I'm sure that most of you, if not all of you, have at least Romans 8, 28 memorized. You know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? Verse 29 will tell us. It doesn't just leave us hanging. Okay, everything's going to work together for good for God's purpose, but we don't know what that purpose is. God is a God who reveals his plans, and his plan, his purpose is that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's plan for you, that you would, that you would match up, that you would look like Jesus Christ looked, that you would take on his characteristics, that you would live the kind of life that he would live, that you would have his kind of attitudes. That's God's plan for you. And he said, man, I was, I was hoping for something a little more specific. But that is more than enough of a job description for you in this coming year. God has a purpose for you individually. And that purpose is for you to become more and more like Christ. We know from Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 that, that we've been saved by grace through faith, and verse 10 reminds us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? That's God's plan for you, that you would walk in good works. That you wouldn't just have a bunch of theological knowledge or head knowledge and, and your life never changed. God's plan for you is that your faith would lead to right living. That's his plan for you this year. His plan for you this year is ultimate salvation. Philippians 1.6 tells us that he is the one who is going to perform what he has begun. And he's going to continue that this year. He's going to continue making you more like Christ. And Christian, he's going to continue bringing you to that final day when you are going to be exactly like your Christ. That's what he's going to accomplish. That's his plan, and he's revealed it. Say, so how, how do I know more specifics about what God's plan are? Look, God's plans are revealed in God's promises and revealed in his word. Just like they were in Joseph's life. God's plan was that he be a leader and that there be a nation and that they be in Egypt for 400 years. All right? That's not his plan for you, but his plan for you is still revealed in the word of God. It's revealed in the New Testament. And so you need to make it your, your business to, to study and to understand what is, what is God's working for me? What does he want from me? And you find that in the pages of your scripture. You'll find his will. And you say, is he going to tell me Everything from my little decisions, like uh, which car should I take to work, to my big decisions, you know, who should I marry. It's not how God's will works. God's will gives us a framework for how we live. Uh, it's, and God's will isn't like some little dot that we have to work real hard to try to get right in the middle of, and, and any little deviation we can totally just get out of God's will and our life is ruined. All right? it's, it's better to think of God's will kind of like a circle, and there are, there are things inside that circle that are all appropriate. 
when it comes to decision-making, God reveals his will about, you take, for instance, the marriage thing. God has plenty to say about marriage, right? Um, he talks about, you know, what's, what he values in a husband, what he values in a wife, um, what he, and what he expects to happen in a marriage. And so you use that criteria. And if you had multiple good options, you could pick any of those good options that fit God's criteria, and that would be the will of God. All right? God reveals his will and the word, and it's a framework kind of establishment. And so the more you understand God's word, the more you understand his promises, the more you understand his plans, the more you do live out day by day walking in his will. Conform your life. When we talk about the will of God, we're talking about what he has revealed in his word that he wants to happen. You can do that. You can live out God's will individually for you as you understand his word and then apply it. God has an individual will and not just a corporate will, a corporate plan. All right? And it was clear for Joseph. So you think, all right, great. We've got a plan that God's revealed. Uh, we know that God's going to work out his plan, so let's get to it. Um, God's plans, secondly, God reveals his plans. Secondly, God's plans always work. And yet they always work despite sin, during suffering, and through circumstances. I mean, I'd if we could just break each of those three down and have one verse that fit with each of them. But the whole story of Joseph brings all three of those truths together, that God's plan works despite sin and during suffering and through circumstances. And so let's just trace through those three elements as we go through the story of Joseph, all right? What do we see in verse 12 of chapter 37? Well, Joseph's brothers go out to pasture their father's flock. Israel says to Joseph, I want you to go and check on your brothers and see if everything's fine with them. And so Joseph goes on this long trip. Remember, I mean, they don't have phones. He's just wandering around looking for a bunch of people with sheep. And he happens, verse number 15, that a man found him wandering in the fields. He's wandering around, and it happens that a man found him. All right? God's at work. The man asked him, what are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. And the man said, I happen to have talked to them. I heard them say they're going to Dothan. All right, God is at work. God is sending Joseph to Dothan. And when he's still on his way, verse number 18, before he came near him, his brothers conspired against him to kill him. All right? And here we have sin entering the plan. God has a plan for Joseph that he be the leader, and his brothers say, let's kill him. They said one to another, here comes this dreamer. You can just hear the hatred dripping off every word. Here comes this dreamer, this master dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. They plan to kill him. They plan to lie. I mean, sin is in their hearts, and it's about to give full fruit. And, and they, have no, they don't seem to have any qualms about this until verse 21. His oldest brother, Reuben, hears about it, and he says, no, let's not kill him. Uh, instead, let's just throw him in this pit. Um, it was an empty well, basically, a cistern for water. So let's just throw him in there, and, uh, and don't lay a hand on him. And so Joseph gets there in verse 23. They strip him of his robe, the robe of many colors, and they take him and they cast him into this empty pit that wasn't any water in. Verse 25, the ultimate callousness. Then they sat down to eat. We just planned on killing our brother and lying about it. Ah, we changed plans a little bit. We beat him up and threw him in this pit. Now let's sit down and have some good lamb chops, all right? I mean, these guys are, I mean, sin it couldn't be more evident in their lives. They sit down to eat, and looking up, they see a caravan coming. And, uh, to add on top of their murderous thoughts and their lying thoughts, they go and add greed to it. Uh, verse 26, Judah says to his brothers, look, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? And profit has a deal of like loot, all right? We're talking like pirate loot. What, I mean, what gain are we going to get out of this? Um, we want to get something from it, so let's sell him. And I mean, after all, he's our brother. 
Uh, so we don't want to be the ones that kill him. So let's sell him and get something out of the deal. All right? They add greed to what they've already done. And so Joseph gets sold to the Ishmaelites. And now verse 28 also calls them the Midianites. That's because those, those are the same, um, the same people, Ishmaelites, Midianites. Uh, just a broader word like we would say Arab, and that covers a whole bunch of different people groups over in the Middle East. All right? They use broad general terms like that. The point is, though, these are people that are outside the covenant family. They are, they are outsiders. And Joseph's brothers say, let's get rid of him. And yet, this sin and the suffering it's about the cause are all part of God's plan. Because the Midianites are going to take Joseph to Egypt. And that's what God is at work doing. So, we fast forward to chapter 39. Joseph's been brought down to Egypt. And we think, I'm not sure that this plan is working out so well uh, for him to become the leader. Um, Yet, he ends up with Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. And the Lord was with Joseph, verse number 2. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. All right? Moses didn't have to say that the Lord was blessing him any more times for us to realize that he's not saying Joseph was really brilliant, Um, He had great strategy. He weaseled his way into power. Over and over again, Moses says that the Lord blessed him. The Lord gave him success. The Lord was at work. And we think, all right, finally, we see something good happening. Um, Now we see some circumstances that are going to work out well. We also know that what is about to come. What's about to come is Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife, for whatever reason, um, verse 6 tells us that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Um, it also tells us that Potiphar was away a lot and Joseph was in charge of everything. And so after a time, verse 7, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Verse number 8, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. and He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And the amazing thing about Joseph is that the one thing that he couldn't have, his, his, Potiphar let him have whatever he wanted. There was only one thing that he couldn't have, and that was Potiphar's wife. The remarkable thing is that usually it's the one thing we can't have that we want to have, right? And wasn't that Eve in the garden? You can eat from any of these trees, but you can't eat from this one, and that's the one Eve wanted. And you know that to be true for yourself, surely, that the one thing you shouldn't have is the thing that you want have want to have and if you have kids you know that's true they can touch anything in the house except this and they want to go touch that all right um and and yet joseph saw through that and he said no um i i'm going to live a righteous life and this is wickedness this is sin and so we think all right good job joseph you've done the right thing um you've been honorable and so now god's going to shower blessing down on you and your life is going to be happy and rosy and potiphar's wife lies about him and he gets thrown in jail. And again, we're left going, man, these circumstances took another bad turn. I mean, life is working out even really rotten. Joseph, I mean, we could have questioned with his brothers, maybe he shouldn't have aggravated them, and, and so part of his being sold into slavery might have been at least part his fault. But here, he didn't do anything wrong. He was righteous, and he ends up in an even worse position. Not only is he sold into slavery, now he's a slave in prison. And we think, man, this is, life is not working out well for Joseph. Things are not going good for him. And God's plan is completely awry. And yet, again, God is going to continue the story to show us that even despite sin, 
And even in suffering, the circumstances are always going to work out that his plan is going to happen. And so you know the story. Joseph's in jail, and even in jail, he gets promoted. Because again, the Lord is with him, and the Lord blesses him. And into jail comes a cupbearer, and come the baker from the king. And they have these dreams. And Joseph interprets the dreams. And he says to the cupbearer, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head in exaltation, and you're going to get back to your original place. And the baker's all eager about his dream, and he says, all right, what's going to happen to me? And Joseph says, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head from off your shoulders, and you're going to be killed. And so he tells the cupbearer, look, um, whenever you get, whenever you get to, to Pharaoh, remember me and do right by me. And we think, yeah, that's right. Joseph did this great thing. He interpreted this dream. And so now, now finally God's going to bless him and pour out great greatness on him and things are going to go swell for, for Joseph. And yet, what do we find out in chapter 40, verse 23? Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. That's a very deliberate word. That forgot there doesn't mean like it slipped his mind. It meant he pushed it out of his mind and said, forget it. All right? It's a very deliberate action. So, again, we think, man, he could have tried to get Joseph out. He could have stuck up for Joseph. He could have done something. Joseph's still in jail, and yet in jail is exactly where God wants Joseph to be. Because now Pharaoh himself is going to have some dreams. Years later, two whole years, Joseph's in jail. Can you imagine? Two more years. He still hasn't done anything wrong. He's still been doing the right thing. Two more years, he's rotting in jail. And Pharaoh has these dreams, and nobody can interpret them. And the cupbearer goes, ding, you know what? I forgot about a guy. Let me tell you about him. He interpreted my dreams, and they came out exactly right. And so, you know, Pharaoh calls Joseph. Joseph comes to him. Joseph interprets the dreams exactly correctly. A famine is coming. There's going to be seven good years and seven really, really bad years. And so Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that he promotes Joseph to being second to him. No one else in Egypt has more power. The famine is so widespread that it even affects all the way up to Canaan. And so guess who comes trooping down to Egypt to get food? It's Joseph's brothers. And guess what they do when they show up before Joseph? They bow down. And now all of a sudden, those guys who, who said, let's see what happens if this dreamer's dreams, the guys who plotted to finish those, actually are the tool that God uses to make those dreams happen, that God's plan works out. And it's amazing. We see God's providence all through this as he directs even the sin and even the, the hatred and the suffering that Joseph goes through, and he coordinates it all, and he brings it all together in this beautiful picture where exactly what he said was going to happen happens. You see, God's plans always work. They work despite sin. They work during suffering. They work through circumstances. They can't be stopped, and they couldn't be stopped in Joseph's life. And so you know how finally Joseph reveals himself to his brothers in chapter 45. And listen to Joseph's commentary. Chapter 45, verse number 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud. So the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me. They came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve your life. You sold, but God sent that's the contrast in this verse. You sold, God sent. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. So it was not, verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
Verse 9, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to here. Joseph was keenly aware that it was God who was at work in his life. You see, God's plan always works out. And you need to remember today, as we head into this new year, that it's the same God who works out his plans for you. He worked out his plan for Joseph just like he said he was going to. And he's going to work out every plan, every promise that he's ever made in the New Testament to us as well. In this story of Joseph, all of the details that God brought together in this beautiful picture of God's control, despite all of these things, ought to be an encouragement to you today that God is still going to work out his plan for you. You don't need to despair about a new year. You can know that God's going to work out his plan. And that plan might very well include suffering. It certainly did for Joseph. There are people sitting in this room this morning who may not be sitting in this room a year from now because they have already died. There are people in this room who are going to be sick. There are people in this room who are going to have finances go backwards. There are people in this room that are going to have disaster of any number of sorts. There are people in this room who are going to have a great year and things are going to go super. No matter what your state, it's God working out his plan for you as he revealed in his word that he wants you to be more like Christ. And just like he worked it out in all its beauty in the case of Joseph, he's going to work it out for you. You ought to have faith. You ought to have hope. You ought to have encouragement that this same God works for you today. See, God's plans always work, and they always work in order to accomplish his purposes. And so let's go to chapter 50 where we saw the end of the story. At the end of the story, we see God's purposes accomplished. Joseph's whole family ends up down in Egypt. His father dies, and his brothers freak out, and they say, Joseph's been harboring bitterness, and so he's just going to try to get rid of us. We need to beg his forgiveness. And they say, we're your servants. Not even your brothers, we're your servants. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph says, just like he understood that God was at work in his life, he understands that he's not God, only God is God. I'm not in God's place. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not, I'm not going to cause revenge on you. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. That was, that was your motive. That was your intent. But God meant it for good. What kind of good did God mean from all of Joseph's suffering? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, Joseph being in Egypt, it kept his family alive. It kept countless Egyptians alive. And it kept other four nations who would come to Egypt to buy food and grain. It was God's plan. And that plan even began to expand beyond just Joseph and his family. God was keeping his promises. He was even keeping his promises to Abraham, right? Joseph doesn't go to Egypt and his family starves in the famine. You don't have a God who keeps his promises anymore because he promised Abraham that he would become a nation with children as many as the stars in the sky, and then they'd have a land, and you can't do that if you all die of famine. God's keeping his promises to Abraham. God is also furthering redemption's story. You see, we finish in Genesis 50, and we read that, that Joseph dies, and yet the story of Joseph is just one more piece of the Old Testament puzzle because we go from Genesis to Exodus. And in Exodus, we find no longer just a little family but a whole nation that has grown and multiplied. And that whole nation is going to be in Egypt for 400 years. And at the end of those 400 years, God is going to show his power and his glory, and he's going to bring them out. And that's all part of God's plan to keep his promises to Abraham, to give him a land, to give him a nation, to make him a blessing to all people. 
And that story is going to continue through the rest of the Old Testament as God's people fail him and he blesses them and then fail him and he blesses them and then fail him and then are sold into slavery until at last we come to the New Testament where we find the ultimate answer, the ultimate blessing to all of the Abrahamic promises. You see, that promise to Abraham wasn't a conditional promise. It wasn't, if you obey me, I'll keep my word to you. God made a promise hard and fast to Abraham. And his plan was, I'm going to keep that. And so, the New Testament, we read that Jesus Christ comes, the final answer to Abraham's seed, the one who would be a blessing to the nations, the one who one day will rule as king over the land, the physical, actual land, this Christ. See, the whole story of the Old Testament with these promises to Abraham worked out in the life of Joseph and then all those years after are all part of the redemption plan of God. That is the story of the Old Testament. That God made a promise and it was a promise of redemption and he would keep that promise. You see, God's plans always accomplish God's purposes. They accomplished it in Joseph's life. He saved Joseph. He saved Joseph's family. He saved countless Egyptians, and he continued the story. He made progress further in the story than one day culminate in the coming of our Christ. This story, far from, far from being an old, unimportant relic that ought to have dust on it in our Old Testament, is alive for you today because it's the same God who works for you. And no, he doesn't talk to us in dreams anymore, and no, he doesn't speak directly to us like he did to Abraham, but he's a God who reveals himself in his word. He reveals his plan for you. You don't have to bumble around through life wondering what's my purpose and what am I supposed to be doing. God has a will for you, a plan for you, and it's found in his word. God is a God who, who will always work out his plans. And it doesn't matter this year if you go through hardship or you go through blessing, whether circumstances seem good to you or seem bad to you. God is working out his plan if you are one of his. God's plan are going to accomplish God's purposes. It will not fail that God will make his church pure. It will not fail that God will have a, a body who is fit for its head. It will not fail that one day we will be presented spotless as a body to our Christ. God keeps his promises. And so, for us this year, the task for us, the challenge for us is to say, what are God's plans? I want to understand them. And once I have understood them, how can I live them? How can I line up with them? How can, I, how can I say this is what God is doing and I want to be on board with that? What it will take from us is a determination to understand the word of God and then the grace to live the word of God. No matter what the circumstance, I mean, can you imagine poor Joseph all those years suffering, then in jail, then doing well, and then seeing his family again, the fact that God would bring his family all the way back down to Egypt. That was God at work. And all of those things working out. Days that Joseph didn't know if he would live or die, followed by days that he was the best in Potiphar's house, following by not knowing if he's going to live and die in jail, followed by the, being the best in Egypt. All of that back and forth. Joseph not knowing what was going on. What was going on is God was working out his plan. He's going to do the same for you. And yet for you, you need to have confidence that it is God who is at work. It's possible that, that you don't even have a living relationship with God that you haven't, you haven't even believed his plan for salvation, let alone his plan for your life. That's, that's step one um, for, for you for a new year. You need to believe God's plan of salvation, that it's, it's not about your good works to save you. It's not about your effort. It's not about how much righteousness you can work up. But it's about the righteousness that God gives to you because of faith that he gives to you. 
It's because of grace. So not by works, but by faith. That's, that's a starting point for God's plan for the Christian. And the continuing part is you loving the word of God, learning the word of God, and living the word of God. This is the same God, same God that worked everything out in Joseph's life that will work everything in this coming year. Will you trust him and will you follow him? Let's pray.